Our scripture text for today is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Jesus also said to the disciples, A certain rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate. He called the manager in and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me a report of your administration, because you can no longer serve as my manager. The household manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is firing me as his manager? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I am removed from my management position, people will welcome me into their houses. One by one, the manager sent for each person who owed his master money. He said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, 900 gallons of olive oil. The manager said to him, Take your contract, sit down quickly, and write 450 gallons. Then the manager said to another, How much do you owe? He said, 1,000 bushels of wheat. He said, Take your contract and write 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted cleverly. People who belong to this world are more clever in dealing with their peers than people who belong to the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into the eternal homes. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. I love this series we're in because I love a good parable. The parables that Jesus tells, these short stories meant to inspire our imagination and help us envision a kingdom that is already here in us and also very far away. These stories they're confusing, they're fun, they're troubling. They offer a multitude of different interpretations. And the reason that I love them so much is because on any given day, they can speak different kinds of truth to me and to the communities I'm in. And so today we're going to dive pretty straight into this weird parable and see what truth we can glean from it today. Again, that does not mean that this is the only truth or the truth for always, but it is the truth that I have heard from God today in this scripture. And I invite you to consider it from, uh, from that perspective and just see where it takes you. In this puzzling parable of a generous trickster, we have this chain of events. There's a manager, and this manager is in charge of a lot of accounts under his boss, who is a very rich man. The manager learns that he's about to be fired, and he panics. He's like, I can't do manual labor. I, this is all I know how to do. I'm, I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do with my life? This is the job that I have. This is my place in society that I know about. And so he thinks, how can he take the most advantage of the position he's in right now as not the owner of all of this wealth, but certainly the one in charge of it, the one making major decisions about how to manage these accounts that the rich man has, including lots of debt. Lots of people owe this rich man a great deal of debt. And so he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go before I get fired, while I still have this authority. I'm going to run around town and I'm going to find all these different people who owe my boss a lot of money. 
and we are going to rework their accounts, and I'm going to slash their debt, sometimes in half. I'm just going to erase a whole mountain of debt for them. Now, on the surface, this doesn't seem like it would benefit the manager a whole lot. Maybe he's just being really bitter and just wants to get back at his boss because his boss is now losing out on these accounts that are owed to him. But this manager is clever, and he knows that if he expresses generosity, even though he won't see a dime out of these transactions, he will have curried favor with the folks who had their debt relieved. This generosity will offer him a kind of potential for reciprocity so that when he is fired and put out on the streets, he will have a soft place to land, perhaps in one of the households or staffs of the people he offered that generosity to. And so he does this enormous favor for them. On his way out the door, he slashes their debt. Again, sometimes in half, these enormous debts, now they only owe half and by his clever generosity, builds a network of allies so that once he's fired, he has people who will help him just as he helped them while he was their inside man. Ultimately, in this parable, the rich man himself praises the manager for his cleverness. This is a strange story because on the face of it, it seems really odd that we're supposed to learn from Jesus about how to be a liar, how to technically be a thief. But Jesus really loves telling these stories that turn everything on their head. That's why this series is called The Upside Down. Because the kingdom is like a generous trickster. And, and Jesus is trying to help us understand why. He loves actually telling these stories with uh, kind of underground figures or people or even objects like mustard seeds and yeast that are having uh, that are filled with these negative connotations. Jesus loves taking the things that the world has deemed bad or ugly or twisted and offering them back to us in a beautiful story, inviting us into a different kind of world. So what is the kind of different world hinted at by this generous, deceitful manager? Jesus also praises his cleverness, and he emphasizes the need for his disciples to learn to be clever in worldly dealings. Now, that doesn't really seem to jive with all of this um, teaching that Jesus offers us to be open and generous and trustworthy, and, you know, for, for Jesus to kind of swoop back in and be like, oh, and by the way, like, you know, make sure you get what's yours or turn these things on their head. It seems like we're being encouraged to cheat people the way that the manager cheated the rich man. But if you dig a little deeper, you see that, yeah, Jesus seems to be fine with the manager cheating the rich man. He has plenty. He is doing just fine, and he is doing well enough. And maybe he needs a little bit taken from him so that others can be provided for, including this manager who is about to be out of luck. But you also see that Jesus isn't telling us that we have to be um, evil or sinful in our cleverness, but that our cleverness has value. It kind of goes back to this other teaching in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, where he says, See, I am sending you out like sheeps among wolves. So be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. 
We're not meant to trade in our innocence for evil. We are not supposed to start becoming wolves, but we're supposed to be really smart sheep. We're supposed to learn from the wolves and beat them at their own game. It seems a little too good to be true, right? Isn't that a kind of slippery slope? Don't we need to maintain our innocence by maintaining our ignorance or by just stepping out of worldly affairs? Jesus says no. He, he says in this parable, uh, in his elaboration of this parable, listen, the, the, the children of the world are real clever in their dealings and are really good at dealing with money and getting what's theirs. You children of heaven... You need to be as good as, that, as them at that. You need to find a way to bring your cleverness and maintain your innocence. Be as wise as those serpents, but remain innocent as doves. And though that may be a tricky needle to thread, it is something that Jesus did constantly. Jesus is often depicted as really clever, like annoyingly clever, like don't get into an argument with Jesus clever. He often evades questions or accusations that are posed to him. Someone will ask him something to try and trap him. He'll use it as an opportunity to make that person look foolish or strange. He tried, uh, people tried to capture him and he would surround himself with crowds and riots so that he couldn't be captured. So you know that when he was arrested, he knew it was going to happen. Because he had evaded and, and somersaulted and tumbled his way through the world. He had woven his way through that crowd that wanted to throw him off the cliff. Jesus knew how to get out of a bind. Jesus knew how to cleverly engage with the people who were bringing the evilness and sinfulness of their hearts to attack him. And he remained innocent as a dove, innocent and sinless, and yet was clever and funny and insightful and he was like those serpents, moving through as best he could, which was really, really good. One of my favorite um, theological ideas about Jesus has to do with the cross and Jesus' cleverness on the cross. Now, it may seem odd to think about Jesus being clever on the cross. That's not usually how it's framed these days. These days, we are told we sinned that made God mad, God required some sort of blood sacrifice or eye for an eye type situation, and Jesus substituted, substituted himself so that we didn't have to die for our own sins. But that idea, which is called Anselmian Substitutionary Atonement, um, or sometimes called Penal Substitutionary Atonement, that idea is actually relatively recent. And one of the earliest and most persistent ideas about the cross is pretty different. It was originally called the ransom theory of atonement. You may have noticed that in some of our songs, we talk about Jesus who ransomed us. And we can easily take that word and put it into that newer idea that we were supposed to die and Jesus died in our place because of some sort of trade-off with God. But in the original and most persistent ransom theory of atonement, we're actually dealing with the devil. You see, in this early, early understanding of the church and of the cross, there was this idea that Adam and Eve, in the fall, became captive to sin and therefore captive to the devil. 
that Satan had a kind of ownership over human beings and the souls of human beings, that we were subject to Satan because of sin, and that God started to negotiate with the devil. God said, hey, devil, I know you got all those humans and they're great and all, but what if you could have something better? What if you could have me? I will give you myself, myself, my son, that confusing trinity-ness. I will come down to earth and act like a human. And rather than killing all of the human beings and keeping their souls for eternity, you can kill and keep me. I will deliver my own death on behalf of humanity, and we'll do a kind of trade. And the devil was like, uh, Yahtzee, who needs all these pesky humans when I can kill God? Great, sign me up. And so as a ransom for the kidnapped human beings, Jesus was delivered to the devil, to the cross, and, and traded for humanity. Sometimes in this theory, they literally talk about Jesus as bait. And so the devil agrees, they kill Jesus. And Satan loses hold over all humanity, traded for Jesus dying on the cross. But then, just a few days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating the devil, defeating sin and death. You see, they tricked the devil. They tricked Satan, who didn't know that Jesus couldn't be killed, that you can't kill God, that the God of life will always live. And so, having tricked the devil, Jesus walks out of the gates of hell and comes back into the eternal kingdom with the new uh, freed humanity, no longer in the grips of the devil, because humanity now has been reclaimed by God who set us free. This is the theory of Christus Victor, Christ the victorious, Christ, that clever trickster God who defeated Satan through a clever negotiation, a sleight of hand, a backhanded promise. It's one of my favorites because it shows that God is actually willing to go to a great number of lengths to get us into freedom. And that God isn't above a little trick here and there. God isn't above beating the devil at his own game. God will do whatever it, it takes to free us. And that doesn't mean stooping to evil. But it does mean entering into the spaces of evil, going behind enemy lines, maybe speaking the language, learning the tricks, and turning them on their head. Jesus says, be like me. Trick the devil. And in this in this parable, the rich man is the stand-in for the devil here. And the manager is like Jesus, tricking the one who would hold debt over him. And instead, offering generosity, freedom, and release to those with whom he really wants to be in relationship. Be one step ahead. Beat the devil at his own game. That is one of the beautiful interpretations I take from this parable. And the manager beat that system of economic dominance that was about to crash down on him, just as Jesus defeated the dominance of death and sin on the cross. And he was praised. Jesus, in his explanation about this parable, then drives home his final point. It is actually abundant generosity, not the hoarding 
of wealth or power that will keep us truly secure in this life and in the life to come. Have you ever had an experience where being generous was actually the smarter, more strategic move than being stingy? I believe this is actually one of the principles of the natural world. We see this pattern of strategic gift giving, a kind of exchange. It's the nature of any ecological system where things are all tied into one another. Nature knows that its well-being is bound up in the well-being of everything else in the ecological system. It's something we talk about here, but it's something that human beings have forgotten. One example is berries. Berries are a kind of gift from plants to animals. They are sweet, they are nutritious, and they contain seeds. You see, when these animals, including humans, scoop up those berries and take them into their body and are nourished by them, they have the energy it takes to travel long distances away from where they first ate. And as those nutrients are broken down and they give life to that animal, the seeds, most of them, I don't know if y'all have noticed, pass through the system, often entirely unharmed, and then are left by those animals in new places to fall to the ground. Now with a rich manured um, soil in a new context, to grow and create new bushes, new plants. All these parts are interdependent, and so the gift that the bush gives to the animal becomes a gift that the animal gives back to the bush, bringing its offspring into new and different places, creating more life and more abundance. Abundance begets abundance, and that is one fundamental lesson from the gospel. It is something that is so contrary, so countercultural to the way that we live here in the Western and capitalist mindset that defines our culture. We think that scarcity and hoarding define everything. I've got to get what's mine. And then with surplus, I can offer abundance. That's not what the gospels say. The gospels say that the surplus comes from generosity, that abundance comes from generosity, and the natural world backs up the gospel here, that it is only when the pieces give to one another in this dance of mutuality that there is enough for all. And it's not just in the natural world. There are communities of human beings who have not forgotten this, who thrive on gift economies. They're just mostly not Western. Native writer and botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer wrote the book Braiding Sweetgrass. And I got to say, I just love this book. I, I haven't even finished it because I am savoring it. I read through it so slowly, and it's been such a gift. And I know that I recommend a lot of books. Um, but if you are interested in learning about um, indigenous wisdom as it relates to the natural world, especially here in Wisconsin, um, uh, I'm losing her name, a Kimmerer, <clears throat> Wall Kimmerer, Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, has her lineage in Pot Potawatomi um, 
tribes and cultures and history, and that's native to this space. Those were the folks who stewarded this land in incredible ways. Those are the stories and the wisdom of folks who lived on this land for generations before it was colonized. Uh, and I cannot recommend enough checking out Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. In any case, in Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about how indigenous communities thrived on gift economy, on the offering of gifts, not only to the earth who gifted them, but also to one another. She talks about a dream that she had. She had been doing research in the Andes, and there was a village that she treasured, a market in particular in that village. And she had a dream about this village market. And she describes that she went to buy cilantro from Falita, who was the person who she, she bought cilantro from regularly. But when she went and they chatted and she grabbed her, her bunch of herbs, she tried to pay and her coins were waved off. Oh, no, 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 no. And the cilantro was given to her as a gift. So then in this dream, she moves from that stand to the panadera to buy some bread. And as she picks out the perfect loaves and pulls them into her bag, she offers her money and again is waved away, almost as though it was impolite of her to offer money. And she looks around at the market and realizes that it's not just her. The whole market has become a space of gifting. No one was paying for the things that they were taking. She said gratitude was the only currency accepted here. She goes on describing this dream, and she says, I looked down at my basket, and I saw what was there, and she lists all this beautiful produce, and she considers going over to the cheese, cheese vendor. She looks over, and she knows that it would be gifted to her, not sold, but rather than taking more, because she knows it's a gift, she says, I'm going to use some restraint here. I can actually go without this. And she left the market more self-restrained, taking only what she needed, and also starting to contemplate what she would offer back to the vendors the next day. Now, this is a beautiful dream. And we think, what a nice dream. Too bad it isn't like that in reality. And yet I have actually witnessed that dream in reality here at Zhao over this summer, actually. Many of you, if you've been here a little while, know about the Zhao Depot. This is a ministry that we started in response to incredible street activists declaring 200 days of marching in Milwaukee. We learned quickly that there would be a supply chain needed. And so we started building the supply depot here at Zhao. We had a gymnasium full of supplies, water, food, Gatorade, first aid, medical stuff, tents, um, megaphones, that kind of thing. And people donated all of that. And so then when leaders and activists and people trying to do protests would come, it was so wonderful touring them through it, especially on their first time. They would be in awe at the abundance that was on offer but they would be unsure, is this, is this free? 
Yeah, it's here for you. It's been given to you. This has all been gathered by people who wanted to give it to you as a gift, as an appreciation, as support. And you would see over and over again newcomers to the depot in awe of that generosity suddenly shift to be a lot more careful about what they were putting in their bags. Sometimes, after learning that it was all completely free and donated, they would take things out of their bag and say, I don't think we need this many. I'll put this back and we'll come back if we need more. It was really incredible. When it was a gift, it felt like something more than what it would have been if they had paid money for it. Gifts establish a relationship. Wal Kimmerer writes, from the viewpoint of a private property economy, the gift is deemed to be free because we obtain it free of charge at no cost. But in the gift economy, gifts are not free. The essence of the gift is that it creates a set of relationships. The currency of a gift economy is at its root reciprocity. In Western thinking, private land is understood to be a bundle of rights, whereas a gift economy property has a bundle of responsibilities attached. When we give gifts, we are investing in relationship. We are trusting in reciprocity. We are creating an obligation. Now, it's not an obligation that we hoard over someone like a debt. That would be payment. It's an investment in their well-being with the expectation that they will invest back in our well-being. But it's not a demand. While Kimmerer also writes about the different feelings we have attached to items that are gifted to us rather than items that we've bought, she gives as an example a pair of red socks. Now, if those socks were knitted for you, made for you by someone who loves you and gifted to you. They contain all kinds of feelings of gratitude, of relationship, of joy. But how does all of that evaporate when it's just something that you handed money or a card over to a cashier about? Or you found your promo code online and you got 10% off and they'll be shipped to your door. Those socks, the ones that were bought rather than given, become a commodity object that there really may not be much of a relationship to at all. But gift-giving relationships encourage mutuality and gifting back. Rather than those private, prodigy, pri private property commodity objects, which actually inspire hoarding. This is what the rich man was doing. He held his wheat and his olive oil as commodities. And so when he gave them out, he expected them to come back, perhaps with interest. It was a selling exchange, not a gifting exchange. And so then, instead of a relationship of mutuality and generosity, it becomes a relationship of dominance and debt. There are a lot of things Jesus talked a lot about. Jesus was very vocal about debt. That in the kingdom there is no debt. That debt forgiveness is one of the fundamental uh, actions and opportunities along the way towards the kingdom. That we cannot enter the kingdom in debt to anyone. But we enter the kingdom as a gift. 
And the joy of that is then we are able to gift others. It's an invitation into a relationship with God who has given us the whole creation, hoping that we, out of that relationship, will be eager, excited to give back. Jesus often teaches about the sin and woundedness of hoarding wealth. And we talk rightly about how that is driven by fear of scarcity rather than connection to abundance. But what if it is also disconnect? Disconnect from the power and depth of the creation around us, of the things that sustain us. That money has made abundance such an abstraction. It's now a number a number we track in our wallets or in our bank account or on our bills. That's what we track now. Rather than understanding the richness and abundance of a meal that we would rather share than eat alone. Rather than understanding the warmth and beauty of clothing that maybe has been made for us with care that we would love to reciprocate with joy or a game or a song. Abundance in the kingdom is real and material. It is not an abstraction, something that we can hoard, something that we can rack up a number about. It is an investment in relationship, in joy, and in being present, being fully alive. What would an increase in generosity require of you? What would an increase of generosity give back to you? Generosity in the kingdom way is ultimately an act of trust. It is an act of trust in the God who made a world intended for reciprocity, for giving back. It is an act of trust towards mutuality, that other people and the rest of creation will meet you in that act and provide for you as you have provided for them. Generosity is a trust and an investment in relationship saying, I am going to stake my hope in people, in God, in creation, in connectedness, rather than my ability to manage that number in my bank account. The way of the world is hoarding. The way of creation is strategic gifting. And the way of the kingdom is generous mutuality. Let's be people of the kingdom. And to get there, let's be clever, like that generous trickster or that Christ the victor over sin, death, and scarcity. Will you pray with me? God of abundance, you see a way where we see no way. You see opportunity where we see only scarcity. And you see gifts of abundance where we see only objects or debt or domination. God, give us the power to perceive the world as you do. Give us the ability to receive gifts from one another with joy and openness. Give us hearts of gift givers and the cleverness of tricksters. God, may we be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, just like you. In your name we pray. Amen.